So I'm starting in verse 1 of chapter 16. The Apostle Paul said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who, has the fir- who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with the holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So we have a few things here, but I found a way to catch the heart of this passage without a crash course in first century culture and Greek language. Uh, when I read these personal greetings in verse 1 through 16 and reflect on the intensity of Paul's ministry, you know, the opposition he faced um, and all that he endured for the sake of the gospel, a particular pastor or theologian comes to mind. There's a Scottish pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford is famous for his collection of letters commonly titled The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. (laughs) If there are 25 people to know since Paul wrote his writings, Rutherford is certainly one of them, in my estimation. Spurgeon said that Rutherford's writings were the closest thing to an inspired word by a mere man. That's to say, in a value hierarchy, you have Scripture and you have Rutherford, according to Spurgeon. High praise, obviously, but why, why does he say that? Well, the main thrust of Rutherford's story goes like this. He was a prodigious mind, and not just a country pre- preacher, but a serious theologian and even a political philosopher, delivering sermons before Parliament and the king. If you know anything about Europe in the post-Reformation era, you know that the political unrest of that time was without a doubt extreme. One monarch takes the throne... True preachers suffer severely. Another monarch takes the throne. True preachers somehow get their job back. Rutherford was in a backwater town, having serious trouble in ministry, and tragically losing his wife and two children in those early years. He did not have the glorious circumstances that young preachers dream of. He had serious opposition and serious heartache. Yet he stayed faithful to where God had planted him. After a few more years, but still in his 30s, He published an excellent theological treatise that wound up catching the attention of a bishop who banished him from preaching in Scotland. So Rutherford is essentially famous for being exiled and how he responded. Now, his congregation knew who he was. They said he was known to always be praying, always preaching, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing and studying, and yet he was banned from exercising ministerial office. 
In short, the political powers of the day took his church away because he preached salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, in one way or another that made them look bad. So this was a difficult time for our kind, a difficult time for Rutherford's kind. He devoted his life to the ministry, and at about age 36, he was ordered to stop and exile to the other side of the country. He wasn't tortured like the martyrs of the ancient church or even like some of the reformers. He was a man called to preach who was tortured by having his mouth closed. Cast away from those whom he loved with the love of Christ. That little country church had his heart. So just as Paul wrote many epistles in prison, or John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison, so Rutherford began to write in his exile. For almost two years, he wrote and wrote and wrote. From those two years came almost all of those letters in that uh, compilation I mentioned, which he never meant for publication. These weren't sermons. They weren't even public proclamations. These were personal, intimate, pastoral letters. He loved those people, and he continued to minister to them through his letters. They are written to real individuals, and he was responding to particular needs. His writings made him the most influential writer of the following generation of pastors. Even hundreds of years later, today, pastors and theologians have found that Rutherford's Rutherford's letters address those same longings, those same fears, those same doubts that people in our congregations have today, in our time. He just had the way of writing that sticks with you. His letters... His pastoral heart is on every line. People say his writing is almost poetry. His letters make Christ out to be very relevant to the Christian. His life was full of heartache, loneliness, persecution, and insurmountable circumstances. Serious excuses for quitting were always at his door. Valid reasons to choose another walk of life. But he loved his people. And he knew in his heart that God had planted him there for Christ's sake. And for those who read his letters, he clearly loved Christ. That's the depth and commitment and affection we need to hear in Paul's letter today. He speaks of these people, not just as people he has pleasant conversations with before and after Sunday service. It's not a casual acquaintance full of small talk. He speaks of them as family. Every address here in these 16 verses says, I know you. I know you well. Which is really interesting when you realize that Paul actually hasn't been to Rome yet. It's not in a superficial church family sort of way. Family is under attack in our culture, is it not? Many have become so distant from a biblical view of family that it can be hard for people to actually hear the connection Paul is making throughout his letters. This idea of the body of Christ. Many of us are so independent or individualistic that we are callous to the warmth of this text. It's not an end note. It's the part of the letter where he's smiling as he thinks about those who have become his family. He's sending the best message in the world to the people he loves. So let's take a look at uh, Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Paul calls her a servant of the church at Centre. That's a port city near Corinth. He's writing from Corinth to Rome. He asks them to give her whatever she needs and informs them that she has been a patron to him. What does that mean? That means she's financially supported Paul's ministry. It's more than likely that she was delivering the letter to the Roman church. So she's holding this letter. So he'd like them to receive her as his official assistant. We see here the importance of women in the early church. Phoebe here is a reminder of the very important role that women had in the life of the early church. Some traditions 
that have an emphasis on experience tend to attract women. The emotionalism of the worship or the intimacy of the small groups and fathers have to constantly be prodded to buy into that. Some of the more heady traditions tend to attract men and the women are marginalized. Now, I'm not condoning either of those norms, nor am I comparing our church to either of those two options. That's not this church. I'm not even assuming those stereotypes among men and women. That's just what we see in the palette of evangelicalism. If we want to avoid falling into either of those, let's look to Phoebe, a woman who is an important part of the church life. She's likely a successful businesswoman, perhaps like Lydia in the book of Acts. At the same time, she's not by any means approaching masculinity. The church is under fire from those confusions today as well. There's a lot to say on that topic. For now, Phoebe is a picture of the radical change we see in someone who becomes a member of the body of Christ. She's much more than a large tithe and a seat on Sunday. She's even more than one, of, one or two dishes at a potluck and the occasional helping hand. This lady is going across the known world to deliver the most important letter ever. That's a profound commitment to the gospel. I know you won't be doing that, but that's a profound commitment to the gospel and to the church, something to be admired. It certainly wasn't good for business. It doesn't matter. Careers don't come before what is established in the gospel. Any career is a means to an end for a Christian, isn't it? That's how we can toil with joy. Whether we are the pastor or whether we are the financial support of the pastor or the mailman, we are receiving the reward that all Christ's church will receive. We will reap the benefits of covenant fellowship. And so in regard to Hen and myself, we thank everyone in this church for their patronage like Phoebe's. You've resolved to financially support us through seminary. And so we can already see the same relationships Paul had in our own church. Your support of us and your support of Kendall and Emily is a serious matter. It's the kind of thing that is tone deaf to unbelievers. Don't pastors just work on Sundays? Is that even a real job? What's seminary? <laughs> I can't tell you how many people have asked me that since I've been here. I'm headed to seminary to be trained as a shepherd for believers and to start becoming, as what Machen called, the founder of Westminster, an expert in the Bible. And we are grateful to be a part of a church that understands the seriousness of that responsibility, the seriousness of being a gospel minister. We will be gone for a long time, and we will likely be planted somewhere else far away after the fact. It's only in the church that we see that sort of sacrificial support. There's nothing pragmatic about it. And that's also what we see in the next set of verses. Prisca and Aquila, they were tent makers like Paul. Paul chose to continue to put bread on the table in that way for the sake of the gospel. He also said that it wasn't ideal, but required for a time. Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, if you're accustomed to the older translations, joined efforts with Paul in the toil of tent making for the sake of the gospel. They weren't just tent makers. Either they were also the kind, also, they were also the kind of people who loved the Lord with all their mind. That is, they learned the things of God through Scripture in a sophisticated and a mature way. Acts 18 can tell you a bit more about their involvement if you're interested. The point here in our text is that they did not simply work for a living and tithe. They worked for the sake of the gospel. Their life was not just a job. A Christian's identity is never centrally a skill set that results in an ability to produce. Our lives and our time are so much more than that, regardless of if we are ordained or not. Paul says they risk their necks for him. We're not under that sort of persecution today, but let's consider that sort of commitment. 
do you not want that sort of relationship with the people of other church, at other churches? People who have taken seriously God's word and have conviction beyond the pole of pragmatism. Our good friends, Luke Schmelzer and Jess, are headed to your area. You'll have that sort of government fellowship, covenant fellowship with them if you want it. It's important to remember that we aren't alone. Fellowship with other congregations is, is super beneficial. Paul is asking the, the receivers of this letter to greet the other churches in Rome. He says of those two, greet also the church in their house. So you can see that there are multiple churches in Rome, church, house churches. I hope we can all benefit from those sort of connections that are more like family and supersede the barriers of time and distance. I, I wouldn't move to Philly with any, with, with any sort of confidence if I wasn't certain that a doctrinally valid covenant fellowship wasn't already there. You see what I'm saying? Please know that while we are away from you, we are praying for you each, all, we are praying for each of you every day. And I hope with support, you will support us in the same way. We haven't, we, we've been tent making together for a small amount of time, but please know that it's been a very impactful season for Hannah and myself. So notice in the following verses how he greets the people as beloved. He does beloved, beloved. Earlier Phoebe was sister. There are kinsmen, brothers, sisters. Rufus's mother, who is a mother to Paul. These aren't formalities. These are meant with the full force of their meaning. That sort of sincerity is rare today. Those relationships and their significant affections are established in your heart by what God's word does to you. Paul talks this way because of his commitment to the gospel and the church. That commitment has resulted in deep relationships. It can be hard to commit to people like that. Life could take you elsewhere. And at times it can be easier to pass through a church rather than love a church and miss a church. Please know that you'll be missed. As for the holy kiss line, <laughs> uh, don't, kiss, don't kiss me. <laughs> I wasn't sure if Hannah would be frowning or laughing at that. <laughs> That's a, so that's a custom in the Middle East. For some, cultures, for, for some cultures there today, actually. And it's just that to us. It's a custom. It's not a principle. The principle for us here is this. Paul is calling them to the same level of sincerity we see in him. And he is reassuring them that that same sincerity is reciprocated by the churches in, in, in his area. He says, all the churches greet you as well. So what is that doctrine that, you know, that motivates this sort of covenant fellowship? Well, Romans covers almost everything. Sin, law, judgment, faith, works, grace, justification, sanctification, election, God's plan for salvation, Christ's work in that plan, the Spirit's work in each of us, hope, how to understand the Old Testament, <laughs> principles of personal godliness, morality, and a lot more than that. The Holy Spirit brings it all together in the mind of Paul, like I've said. He tells us God is holy and that unbelieving mankind is not. You need God's very own righteousness to be made right in his sight. That righteousness is only available in Christ. Only Christ's righteousness counted to your account can give you peace with God. You can only have Christ's righteousness placed on you through faith in him alone. Faith in the truth that the Son took flesh, lived a perfect life, died, died in the place of sinners, rose again as vindica vindication of his work, lifting the curse of sin from believers. 
and that he's ascended to the throne of God as truly God and truly man. Faith that Christ is Lord and Savior of your life. So then you are saved by grace alone because as we've read that earlier, earlier in our liturgy, faith is a gift from God and only the ones justified by God himself will make it through judgment day to glory. Only those found in Christ by faith alone will be saved. This is the gospel that establishes how we live. This is everything Paul has established throughout Romans till this point. If a church is not established in that gospel, it cannot enjoy the kind of fellowship, the kind of covenant fellowship we see in Romans 16 or in Samuel Rutherford's letters. It will be nothing but mundane and insincere. Far be it from us to raise our children in a mundane and insincere church that leads to hardened unbelief. Ultimately, it's the churches with covenant fellowship that will make it through what is happening in our time. Remember what Bruce told us in his last sermon here. It's only this kind of church that's going to make it through what happened, what's happening in our culture. Paul's getting at that when he says a few verses later, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's prophetic language about the promise of the gospel we see throughout Scripture. It was in our psalm this morning. And it's bridged all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God put enmity between the serpent and Eve's offspring. That's Christ and us. Satan shall bruise Christ's heel, but Christ shall crush the devil's head. And we, the body of Christ, will join in that victory. That's really what Paul's saying. We are the hands and feet, and thus we will stand triumphant over sin and death with Christ. That's the glorious reality established in Christ's gospel. We will stand together in Christ. His spirit will finish the work that he starts in his beloved children. That's his church. So this is where I'll finish Rutherford's story. So he was allowed to return to his church, his beloved church, vindicated from the false claims against him, only to be whisked away by the presbytery to take the chair of divinity at the University of Edinburgh. I don't know if you know anything about that school. I've, I've expressed interest in going there. I'm not sure it's the same school today. I'll let you know when I get to that stage. A few years later, he went to London. And Rutherford represented the Church of Scotland and helped write the Westminster Confession of Faith, the most influential confessional document to come out of the post-Reformation era. It was also probably Rutherford. It's not well documented, but it was also Rutherford who wrote the Shorter Catechism. In that time in London, he also published something, a book called Lex Rex, Latin for the law and the prince, or the law and the king, which almost got him killed. Why? <laughs> well, because he feared God more than he, king Charles the, more than he feared King Charles II. Rutherford called the king to democracy and constitutional rights for the people, and that was profound in that time. We're talking the 1600s. In fact, he was being indicted by what history buffs know as the drunken parliament. But, that, but by then, Rutherford was already on his deathbed. He wrote back to his summons at Parliament, and he said in very, this is some old English, he said, I behoove to answer my first summons, and ere your day come, I will be where few kings and great folk come. In modern English, he's saying, hey, I'd come, but I'm dying, and by the time I'd get there, I'd be dead, but really, I'll be more alive than ever. I'll be with my king in glory. His last words were, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Which is in line with Paul's closing doxology in this book. Paul reminds them that, it's, that it's what, that's what it's all about, God's glory. The splendor of beholding the king of kings one day. 
the joy of worshiping, worshiping him forever as creator and redeemer. That's what's ultimately established in the gospel. A chosen people of God the Father, set apart from fallen humanity, redeemed by the Son, sanctified in the Spirit, and glorified on the day of the Lord. A people who will worship him forever and enjoy him forever. Sometimes we miss that. Enjoy him forever. That's what we'll want when we get there, when the Spirit's done working in us. I pray that each of you would come to the assurance that you're chosen. If you're struggling, or ever find yourself struggling in assurance in your faith, you're in the right place. There is no better advantage to salvation than being in in a true church. You will hear the gospel here every Sunday. And you'll see the fruit of the gospel in the lives of this church's members. So how do we apply this passage? Well, here's a reality. Life is hard and full of sorrow. No need for it to be lonely because we're uncomfortable with being sincere. This idea of covenant fellowship is a very strong translation of that term koinonia. This standard text, the standard text that it is usually attached to that idea is Acts 2.42. You might know it. After Pentecost, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is a spiritual fellowship. The sort of language Paul and Rutherford use sounds effeminate to us today. If you read his letters, you'd be a little uncomfortable as a man. We've got to get scripture in control of our priorities over and above the inherent culture. We've heard, that we've heard of two men today who have had harder lives than any of us. It was the church of Christ that they loved enough to keep suffering. They both had people who stuck their necks out for them. The church will be there for you regardless of who you are because that's what Christ calls his church to do. When Hen and I first came to town, it was of first, it was of first important for us, to, for us to find this church. Why? Because believers will always be maladjusted apart from the church. So the first thing we did was come here. Paul can talk this way about people because they have been through serious persecution and challenges together. You'll want a church when that comes for you. You know, even unbelievers are wise to make friends for themselves, to be civil so that when they're in need, they have someone to lean on, right? Scratch my back, I scratch yours. Believers have something even better. We have each other and hope, which is confidence for how our endeavor together will end. We know where this goes. So that gets us beyond pragmatism. Second, the covenant fellowship always runs right next to true servanthood. You will not be made rich (laughs) by giving sacrificially to the church, or at least you shouldn't be. If you invest yourself in a local church, commit to supporting it financially, you will give much more than you gain in regard to material wealth. Because people are in more need than us, than each of us. Your commitment to the church is for Christ's sake, and one one of the only benefits in the here and the now is covenant fellowship. Established in the gospel. It's enough It's enough before Christ's return. A Christ-centered heart is satisfied with the benefit of this fellowship as we look to Christ's coming. And it's one of the only things you can take with you. Third, and maybe most importantly, there is not a trade-off in regard to doctrine and affections. 
We don't have to pick between an emotionally engaging church and a cognitively engaging and cognitively engaging the truth of Scripture. There isn't a trade-off between theology and fellowship, between knowing God and knowing people. That might sound obvious, and yet so many people seem to think it's a, a balancing act. We are certainly called to a childlike faith, but not a childish faith. What's the, dif- what's the difference? Well, a childlike faith submits to God's truth. You acquiesce in a way of surrender. A childish faith doesn't understand God's truth, right? Do you get that? Childlike faith is not spiritual infancy. You will not have true koinonia or true covenant fellowship with believers if you're not gathered around the same word. That doctrine is what leads you to that. So remember that if you remember anything. True covenant fellowship is established in the truth claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not a dichotomy between truth and love. We don't even know what real love is without the truth of the Bible. There's a little RC splash for you. The guy, not the cola. Finally, and I think most uh, intimately, you hardly know the good that will come from relationships established in the gospel. It's relationships that lead to gospel opportunities, right? We could line up all the youth and have them pray a prayer and throw them back into the world hoping it worked. Or we could live lives together established in the gospel. People will know your life is different. Everyone wants something they can trust. Something, someone they can count on. When your unbelieving friends and family see those kinds of relationships in your life, that is the number one thing that will point them to Jesus. So Covenant Church, we have never received so much from a church and given so little. So thank you for all your friendship during this season and the next there and thereafter. Lord willing, we'll be back each summer for at least one Sunday. You are the real thing. This is the only kind of church that will make it through what's happening in the culture. We hold fast to scripture and to each other. And our faith is mutually edified as we become more and more focused on the glory of God. The friendships we have made here have really counted. This church will continue to matter for the people of Decatur and for us. Let's pray. Lord, there's a high call in receiving your gospel that we are called to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's incredibly hard to succeed at that. But Lord, I pray that we would all learn to crave and enjoy the benefits that come with the love that is that strong bond, that union in Christ that is only enjoyed among believers so that no matter where we are, no matter where we go, there is a church there that's got our back, (laughs) that loves us, that loves us because it loves you, not because of how we act, not because of the sin in our life. But Lord, they know that we are walking towards you together, being sanctified by your spirit. Lord, help us to focus on covenant fellowship. As we get older, few things start to matter. Our health fades, people fade. But we can take that covenant fellowship with us to eternity. We take our faith, we take your truth, and we go with each other to you and to your son for glo- to glory forever and ever. Lord, prepare us for your manifest presence. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.